So this is Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 33, going through 46. It says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Let's pray this morning. Dear Father, we come to you this morning with your word open before us. We pray that you will illuminate our hearts to know a little bit more about you, about your character, about your goodness, about your grace, about judgment and mercy, that you will show us who you are, Lord, that you will reveal yourself and your Son to us through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. This morning, I'm calling this uh, the cornerstone of grace for a reason. And I think it's only right at this moment in time before we look at this parable to kind of recap where we were. So uh, last week we saw the last two parables, which is a parable of two sons. Do you guys remember this? There was, there was two sons. One, they were both asked by the father to go do some work. And uh, one of them rejected the father, but then had a change of heart and went and did the work, right? Then the other one said he would, but, but didn't. And Jesus asked the Pharisees at that time which one would receive judgment, and they said the one who didn't do the work, correct? Okay. Now, if we back up a little bit further in Matthew 21, we'll understand this passage even more. So, we've been reading in Matthew, and we know that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, right? And now he is in Jerusalem. He has made it to the Holy Land. And the first place he goes is the temple, which is appropriate, because the temple is the place of worship in the Israelite culture. It was instituted by God. It was put in a place by God, right? Solomon built it. It was destroyed. It was rebuilt again. And it was the place where heaven and earth collide. So it's only natural for Jesus to go to the temple first thing. When his parents lost him and they couldn't find him, what did he say? I'm in my father's house. So Jesus has gone to the temple first thing. And the problem is is that he's seen it in a state that is not exactly how uh, God would have intended for it to be. And he flips over tables of money changers and pigeon sellers. And then he heals all the sick that come to him. 
And we see, first and foremost, from the beginning of Matthew 21, something very important. The temple is not doing its function. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. It was intended to be a place where people could find restoration and could find healing, could find grace. And it instead has become, as he says in his own words, a den of robbers. And so Jesus naturally is unnerved. To take it a step further, there's something else I want to point out. If you look at the very last chapter of the Old Testament, the very last prophet, and then you go to Matthew, there's a period of about 400 years where there's silence. There's nothing. The presence of God has been quiet. And if we believe what the Bible tells us, then Jesus is the Word made flesh. And so when He stepped into the temple, the presence of God had returned. And when He left the temple, it leaves. And that sets the stage for what we're reading right here in Matthew 21. He gives this parable to the Pharisees because they're the people in charge of the temple. The Pharisees, the chief priests, the Sadducees, these are the religious elite. These are the ones who are supposed to know what God's grace is. And he's giving them this parable so that they will ultimately be able to decipher whether or not they're doing the work of God. And so he opens up with this first verse. And again, parables are coded language for people who have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are receptive. And he says in verse 33, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So first and foremost, I want to give you some terms, and this will help this parable make a little bit more sense. The master is God. Right? And what did he do? He planted a vineyard. In this particular case, he's implying that he planted the nation of Israel. And then what did he do? He built a fence around it. He dug it. He basically erected a tower or put a temple in it, right? So, so we're getting this image of that God is doing 99% of the work here, right? So the master plants the vineyard. He plants Israel, the nation of Israel. And then he does all of the work, and then he leases it to tenants. And the tenants are the Pharisees. They're the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests. They are those who are occupying the temple at this moment in time. And then it says he went into another country. That's important. He's leased it out, and he's given them one command. It's the same command that comes from the beginning of Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply. This is a vineyard we're talking about. And so the object of the temple is not to exclude people, but to hopefully draw more people to the temple. The problem is it's not doing that. And so God plants Israel and he leases it out to the Pharisees and he goes away. Now, the important thing from 33 is that God has done literally all of the work, right? He has planted the vineyard, he has put a fence around it, he has dug a wine press, and he has built the tower. What do the tenants have to do? Occupy it. That's it. He's literally built them a place for God's glory, and all they have to do is occupy it. Some uh, scriptural references to this to kind of back up this idea that God does all the work. Um, in the very beginning, what did God do? He created all things, right? When Moses went to rescue the people out of Egypt, it was actually God doing all the work from the beginning. 
In Colossians 1, 15 through 17, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. The key to this passage is that God does it all. The problem with humanity is that we don't like to recognize that God does it all. And we'll see that as we read through this parable. Instead, we want credit for the very things that we don't deserve credit for. And so God here, the master of the vineyard, has got it all set up, given them everything they need to be sufficient, to grow, to multiply, and then he goes away. He leaves it to his stewards. And the question is, are they good stewards or are they bad stewards? Are they actually doing the work of God or are they running, running counter to it? And so here in verse 34 it says, When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. So here it comes. He's ready to, get, he's ready to collect the fruits of his vineyard. It doesn't say the fruits of their labor, it says the fruit of his vineyard. He's coming to collect the fruits of his vineyard. And whether you have servants or slave, that word is a reference to the prophets. So think about what the prophets did. They came constantly to correct Israel, to remind them, live the word of God, live it, do it. Judgment is coming if you don't, live it, do it. And over and over and over again, he sends them prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And so the servants of God here in this parable are the prophets. And in verse 35, it says, And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. They took his prophets and they beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Imagine that. God sends his people, the spoken word of himself, to humanity to say, hey, I'm coming back to the vineyard, get my fruit ready. And rather than listening to the word of God and yielding, they kill them, beat them, stone them, cast them out. The prophet Isaiah was supposedly cut in half. Cut in half. One of the later prophets was supposedly stoned on the altar himself. That's not how we're supposed to yield to the word of God. If everything is created by him and for him and through him, then ultimately we should be yielding to what he has to say, no matter where the source comes from. But what's interesting here is what God does instead of what we would do, right? So if someone were to beat or stone or kill one of our workers, we would naturally take judgment upon ourselves. We would seek judgment. We would find a way to imprison them, stone them, or kill them as well, right? That's the natural law. That's how we find things. But God doesn't work that way, right? He just doesn't work in the same way that we work, he shows some level of unmerited grace that none of us can quite understand. And so rather than sending judgment, he shows them grace and favor. And what he does here is after they've killed and beaten and stoned one, it says in verse 36, again, he sent other servants more than the first. He sends more. So he sends more prophets. All of the prophets in the, in, in the, the Old Testament there, imagine all of them just going, an onslaught to witness the word of God, and, and what happens? They did the same to them, so that means they beat one, killed another, and stoned another, but now it's multiplied because there's even more. 
God does not want to judge us. He does not want to do that. He wants to show us grace and favor. And He sends us people after people after people the Word of God over and over and over again to witness grace to us and tell us, just turn back to Me. Just turn back to Me. Over and over and over again. But unfortunately, the human mind is running opposite. It's running counter to the very things of God. And so at this point, you would be thinking, hmm, okay, He sent one batch of servants, and now a multiplied batch of servants, naturally, he's, he's going to bring judgment now, right? Like, he's got to bring judgment. He's got to rain fire and judgment on these people. But he doesn't do that. In verse 37, it says, Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. He sends his son. Now what's important here to know is, In this parable, the son obviously is a reference to Jesus Christ. We should know that. Um, As Christians, we should immediately see that reference. But the son in that culture would be the heir of the vineyard. He would be the spoken mouthpiece of the father. And so if he was sent to collect, he wasn't just going for his father's purpose, he was going for his own purpose. And think about this. If the son shows you mercy and you're a tenant, maybe possibly you would have an extension of grace. Maybe possibly, even after all of these things that you've done for other people, maybe still you would find work again. The tenants were given the ability to work in a vineyard. And the way it works, the leasing contract of this time period is they would get 50% of the fruit divided by themselves if only the master took the other 50 And so he sent his son here to, again, reunite that contract, that that covenant between one and the other. And naturally, you would think, okay, now's the time to yield. He sent the mouthpiece of himself. But that's not what they do. It's not what they do at all. In verse 38, it says, But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. In 39, And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This is the problem with humanity. This is the problem with all of us. It's natural in our world. And it stems all the way back from the garden. Adam and Eve stood before that tree. And they saw that the fruit tasted good. They saw that it looked good. And Satan whispered in the ears the words that they needed to hear. Saying, you won't die, but you will be like God yourself. The problem here in verse 38 is that these individuals want the benefits, but they don't want the son. They don't want the giver of the benefits. They want the blessing, but they don't want the blesser. It's the same thing that happened in the garden. It's the same thing that happened to Israel when they wandered around aimlessly in the desert. It's the same thing time and time and time again when prophet after prophet after prophet was sent to them. They did not want God. They wanted God's benefits, but they did not want Him. And before you start thinking, oh, well, I'm not a Pharisee. Actually, we ourselves are like recovering Pharisees. It's natural in our minds to desire the things of ourself, our own flesh over anything and everything that God wants for us. 
And so in some way, shape, or form, we're supposed to read this and relate to this group of people. We're supposed to see this exact message here. In these two verses, Jesus goes prophetic. He has not died yet. He has not been crucified yet. But he couldn't be more on point. He says that they will kill him, and they did. It says that they will actually drag him out of the vineyard and kill him, which is a reference to the fact that he will be handed over to Rome. They won't even do it themselves. They want him dead, but they won't even do it themselves. Also, they can inherit the benefits. Now, what Jesus does here, and I think this is incredibly important for us to understand, is rather than pronouncing judgment on the tenants, he does what he did in the last parable again. He asked them, what do you think? Hey, what do you think is going to happen? Right? What do you think is going to happen to you? And this is actually very similar to the story of David when he had an affair with Bathsheba. I don't know if anybody remembers this story. David has an affair with Bathsheba, and God sends this prophet named Nathan. And Nathan goes, and he gives him this grand story, right? This story about this person who sinned egregiously, right? And has had an affair and killed someone's husband. And, and David can't quite figure out, oh, wait, uh, that's me. So he's like, oh, we're going we're gonna to kill him. And the eye for an eye and the tooth for a tooth, right? And then Nathan's like, ah, but that's you, brother. That was you. Now, the problem here is they don't have the same temperament of David. David falls on his face and repents and accepts whatever judgment comes his way, knowing that God's judgment is better than man's judgment. He says that. (laughs) But these do not do that. And so he offers it over to them. He says, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen to these wicked tenants? What do you think is going to happen? And it says in 41, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. They've pronounced judgment on themselves. They've said what they're going to do, the master is going to put them to not just a death, a miserable death. I don't know the exact extent of that, uh, but in the Greek it sounds pretty terrible. (laughs) A wretched death is the word. And what's interesting is this actually comes to fruition. He is proclaiming judgment on the temple itself. He's saying, this thing that you hold dear, it will be destroyed. The judgment has been brought upon you. It's been brought upon yourself for not turning to God. That's the whole point of this, is when we get to this point here, rather than seeking the judgment of ourselves, we are supposed to instead turn to God. That's exactly what we're supposed to do. But again, we naturally glorify ourselves. And so what happens is judgment comes to those who reject the graciousness of God. That's what it is. And I'll back this up with a a scripture. This is from John chapter 12. And this is Jesus speaking. He says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And so he sends his Son, and the Son is eternal life. Right? 
All you have to do is turn to the Son. You turn to the Son, you trust in Him. You put Him before yourself. And guess what? The graciousness of God is there. But if you reject the graciousness of God, you have brought judgment upon yourself. You have brought the law upon yourself. Which is exactly what the Pharisees are pronouncing here. They're taking the law and they're removing the grace. And they're saying they'll be put to a wretched, miserable end. And so Jesus then quotes Psalm 18. He says, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I love that passage, but I also love what Jesus says here. (laughs) He says, Have you never read the Scriptures? Again, these are the chief priests, the Pharisees. These are the people who read the Scriptures every day. And I'm going to give you something right now that's going to take it to a whole other level. This is the week leading up to Passover, which means that what they were doing is every day they were singing the Hallel Psalms. The Hallel Psalms are Psalm 113 through 118. This particular psalm is Psalm 118. So not only have they read it, they've been singing it every day. So this isn't some obscure passage that Jesus has just pulled out and been like, hey, yeah, yeah, you know, that thing from Isaiah. No, he's literally quoting the very thing that they have been singing with their lips day in and day out. They have been with their lips pronouncing that they want the cornerstone to come, but when the cornerstone comes, they reject it. When he actually steps into the building, they ask him what authority he has to preach those words. They are kicking him out of his own vineyard. And so the key to this passage is that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's saying the one that you have rejected will be the cornerstone. The New American Standard says the chief cornerstone, meaning the one that sits on top of the pinnacle which holds everything together. The stone being Jesus, the bedrock, has become the chief cornerstone. And unless you turn to him, you also are putting judgment on yourself. And he backs that up with the next verse, verse 43. He says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is saying literally to them, this kingdom, this temple, gone. You want to know why? Because the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, meaning the stone, Jesus, has now become Israel. He is the new covenant in Israel. And if you reject him, you are rejecting the grace of God. And if you stumble on the fact that he is the new covenant, then you will find yourself in judgment. Now what's interesting, if you really think about this passage, is even though he's pronouncing judgment on the temple, and even though he's pronouncing judgment on the chief and the priest, he's still giving them an opportunity to turn to God. How many prophets, how many priests, how many people have witnessed to God? Finally he comes in in himself, and he's still giving them a chance, and they're rejecting him. They just keep on rejecting him. And so in verse 45, it says, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. So they've connected all the dots that we have just put together here, right? They knew. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. If you read that very quickly, you won't get it. The crowds held him to be a prophet, not the chiefs, not the, the priests, not the elders, not the scribes. 
They were seeking to arrest him. So here in this moment, he's come in. He's used the scriptures. He's opened their world. They know that they're being talked about. And they're still rejecting the cornerstone. They're looking at the chief. The chief cornerstone right there in their midst. And they're rejecting him to his face. And so another aspect of this that I think is incredibly important is that he is speaking these things to those people, but he's speaking them in the presence of disciples. And so if we look at verse 43, it says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, right? It's taken away from the Pharisees and the scribes and will be given to a people producing its fruit. So imagine him looking over to Peter. Imagine him looking over to John. You know, and sort of like a, a nudge, like, hey, guess what? The temple is now moving to these guys. Now, what's interesting, if you think about it that way, is if they're there and they're present and they know, which we know they are, because they ushered him into the temple, and they hear these words, then they know that he's also going to come again to collect fruit, right? We know that Jesus will come again. That's, what he, that's his promise, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, which means when he comes again... He's coming to collect fruit. Which means that while this was for the Pharisees, it's also for the disciples. The followers of Christ now have the commission to bear fruit. And so the question that I want to ask before I answer it is, is your vineyard, is it bearing fruit or is it full of weeds? When Christ returns, which none of us know the day or the hour, Will he find you in a place where your garden is full of weeds? Or will he find it flourishing and bearing fruit? How will he receive you when you come? As we read several weeks ago, the temple becomes Jesus. He is the the center of Israel. And we become living stones built on that temple, which means that we are the temple. And so when he returns to collect his fruit, how will he find you? Will he find you bearing much fruit? Will he tell you, well done, good and faithful servant? I have put you over a little and now I will put you over much. Or will he tell you, go away from me, I never knew you. And so it goes all the way back to what we started when we started meeting again in Matthew 28. The Great Commission is very simple. Go therefore and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to follow my commandments. And so, have you replicated today? And the truth is, we can't do it alone. There's no way we can. The Pharisees were failures at that. They tried to do it on their own, and they couldn't. And the reason why is because they rejected God. They rejected the Son They had made an idol out of themselves. They had put themselves above God, breaking the first commandment. They coveted the things of God, breaking the last commandment, which led to murder, adultery with other nations. They broke every single commandment because of their desire to be their own gods. And so the only way you can be fruitful and multiply is if you put God first, if you absolutely seek Jesus first. And that passage we read from Philippians, I think, really makes this make more sense. So if you want to turn there, that's Philippians chapter 3.
starting in verse 14. Actually, we'll start in verse 13, yeah, verse 13. We started in 14 when we were reading, but we'll start in verse 13. So chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own. This is the Apostle Paul, right? 75% of the New Testament. He doesn't consider that he's made it on his own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and the glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. And then the first verse of chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And so as John predicted in Matthew, we bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance means not, it's, it's, it's not very complicated. It's literally turning to Jesus. It's turning to the seat of grace and looking at him. You repent. And as you turn to Christ, putting him first, you become an imitator of him, as it just said there in Philippians. Being an imitator of Paul, who's an imitator of Christ. Our goal is to emulate Christ. As we learn more about Christ, as we turn to the seat of grace, guess what happens? We start showing grace. We start living grace. We start spewing grace out on everyone. And you know what happens? We bear fruit. We start throwing seeds everywhere. It just happens. It's natural. For instance, we had some family over uh, staying with us last night. Um, And one is, they're very politically active. (laughs) And uh, agnostic as well. And you know what? I found that as a springboard into a conversation of faith. If you're in the Word, if you're in God's Word, living in it, you can't stop. You can't help but speak it. You can't help to say it. And whether people reject it or not is not your issue. Your issue is just to drop those seeds out there. Bear fruit. Who knows? You plant the seed and one might grow. But God, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, will honor it. He will grow it. He will make it grow. If you try to do it on your own, as the Pharisees did, this is the key point. The Pharisees tried to do things on their own. They tried to do a checkbox version of the law. They said, we'll keep all the commands and we'll keep all of the, the, the traditions of our fathers. We'll do it all exactly to a T. But the problem is, is when you try so hard to keep a checkbox to justify yourself before God, you take God out of it. You remove God altogether. But if you remove the checkbox and you say, I just want God and God alone, I just want his grace, that unmerited, undeserved grace, and when you receive it, you cannot help but extend it. It's natural. That's part of your sanctification, growing in that. And so this parable, when you really think about it, is the gospel. 
in a very small condensed version, right? What do we know about the gospel? God, from the beginning, created all things, put all things into order. He put people on the earth to do a job to be fruitful and multiply, but time and time again they rejected God. And what did he do? He sent his son to die for those people. And guess what? He died for those people even though they didn't deserve it so that they might seek him and hopefully return to God's vineyard. It is a mini version of the gospel. It's beautiful. And so today, like this passage from Philippians says, we must be imitators of Christ. We must look to Christ and say, we want to be like that. Will we ever be perfect? No, absolutely not. But part of it is realizing that we're not. Part of it is realizing that we can't be, and that we repent, and we turn to God, and in doing so, He does the glory. He does the things that we can't do. He speaks for us. He bears fruit in ways that we can't do on our own. This passage shows us that those who desire things of themselves end with destruction because their God is their belly and their glory is their shame with their minds set on earthly things. And so I implore you to turn to Christ very simply. Put your earthly desires aside for a moment. Think about the idols that you have erected in your vineyard and say, can I remove them and put Christ first. I want to take you to a much beloved passage, and I'll end here. This is one that we all know. It's John 3.16. But if you keep reading John 3.16, you get more than just what most people know. If you take just the soundbite of John 3.16 and forget the rest of the verses around it, you kind of don't see the whole depiction. You get, a, you get a, just a foretaste, right? You get a taste and see that God is good, as it says to Peter but not the whole thing. So John 3, 16 through 21, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The tenants of the vineyard wanted to be justified by their works. They wanted to say, I deserve this. I will take it on my own. Not realizing that all good gifts come from God. All good gifts come from God. Everything that we have in our life that was given to us by God. Think of that. We don't make ourselves God makes us. And when we think that we make ourselves, that's when we start to reject God as being God. We start to reject his sovereignty. And so don't be a wicked, wicked tenant. Don't be one of those who wants to take the thing that God has and remove Christ from it. But instead realize that he is the light and he has not come to judge the world, but he's come to bring light to it. Don't choose the darkness. Choose the light of life. Choose the sun. And I promise you, the vineyard will grow because of it.
And so this morning, as we end this sermon, I just want you to think immensely about those words. Are you bearing fruit? Can you look at yourself and say, I am, in fact, a fruit bearer? And if you don't feel that you are, well, it's very simple. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Relinquish your pride and turn to Christ. He is the only way, the only truth, and He is the light.